Why do bad things happen? It's one of the great mysteries of life, really, isn't it? Why do bad things happen? Uh, We just heard from Marty this morning that on average, one child every four seconds dies somewhere in the world. By the end of today, 17,000 children will have died. Why? In the 14th century, the Black Plague swept across the face of the earth, killing millions and millions of people. Some estimates suggest that as much as a quarter of the earth's population died. Why do bad things like that happen? In June of this year, you probably heard about it, a 24-storey apartment building in London went up in flames, killing an estimated 80 people and injuring some 70 others. Why? Just last week, a four-wheel drive ploughed into a classroom in Sydney's west, killing two eight-year-old boys. Why? Sometime around 30 AD, a tower in Jerusalem collapsed, killing 18 people. Why do bad things like that happen? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a simplistic answer. The book of Job, for example, explores a whole bunch of reasons why suffering might happen. Some passages clearly show that God sends pain and hardship so as to reveal himself to the person who's suffering. And you can see that in passages like this one from John chapter 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. See, there we're given a clear reason, aren't we? God sent pain, he sent blindness to that man so that the work of God might be displayed in his life and so that God might reveal himself to the guy. And delightfully, if you keep reading that account in John 9, that guy does seem to put his trust in Jesus. Other passages, though, clearly show that God sometimes sends difficulty so as to help prevent sin from taking root in someone's life. And you can see that in passages like this one from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is Paul speaking, and he says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. Again, in that passage, we're given a clear reason for suffering, aren't we? God sent some kind of suffering to Paul. He gave him a thorn in his flesh so as to prevent him from becoming proud and conceited. So sometimes we are given a clear reason for why bad things happen. But most of the time, most of the time there is no simple answer. Most of the time there could be any number of reasons for why something has happened And it's not clear at all which one, if any of them, is even the right one. Most often, when bad things happen, we're given no reason at all. At the start of Luke chapter 13, two dreadful things happen. And you might have noticed, as it was read for us, that Jesus gives no indication at all as to why they happen. And I actually wonder whether that's deliberate. Because he has something else really important that he wants to get straight for the crowds. In Luke 13, Jesus deals with these two tragedies... And he uses them to teach the crowds a really important lesson. And the lesson, I think, is this. You won't always know why bad things happen. But whenever bad things do happen, it should always remind you to repent before you have to face God's judgment. You won't always know why bad things happen, but whenever bad things happen, it should always remind you to repent before you have to face God's judgment. 
Now, as we'll see, that's not just a lesson that the crowds needed to learn. That's a lesson we need to learn as well. So let's have a look. We'll pick it up from Luke chapter 13 and verse 1. And Luke starts by reminding us of the context. So verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time. At what time? Well, Luke's really reminding us of chapter 12 and everything that happened back there. It's been a few months since we looked at chapter 12, so let me quickly just remind you of what was happening back there. Uh, in chapter 12 and verse 1, we were told that a crowd of many thousands had gathered around Jesus and he was teaching them. And you might remember he was teaching them things like, don't store up treasures here on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. Uh, he was teaching them to be watchful and alert and ready like a servant waiting for his master to come home at any moment. You might remember that. And he was teaching them to settle accounts now. He was teaching them to make things right before they were judged by the magistrate. And he was teaching them those kind of things because the big theme bubbling away under the surface in chapter 12 was the sudden, unexpected approach of God's judgment. Now, there were some who were listening to Jesus talk about God's judgment who thought that maybe God's judgment was now being delivered through Pilate. So chapter 13 and verse 1 again. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Seems as though these people who were listening to Jesus talk about God's judgment, they thought that maybe these Galileans being murdered by Pilate was a kind of special judgment. Maybe this, maybe Pilate's actions were God's judgment against evil. And Jesus' reply is pretty simple. No, this isn't God's judgment against their sin. Verse 2, Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. See what he's saying? This atrocity didn't happen because they were particularly bad sinners. It's not as though these things only happen to the worst kind of people. You shouldn't think that this is God's special judgment against a particular sin. And then Jesus goes on to warn the crowd that actually, unless they repent, they'll all perish as well. Verse 2 again. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now just what is Jesus saying there? Because it sounds like he's saying, unless you repent, that is, unless you change your mind about me, because that's what it means to repent in Jesus. It means, in Luke, it means to change your mind about who Jesus is. To repent means to recognise and acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ and so to trust and obey him. It sounds like Jesus is saying here, unless you repent, then you too will die a horribly awful death, just like those people who were murdered by Pilate. Do you reckon that's what he's saying? Because, you know, perish could mean to face God's judgment on the last day. And so Jesus could be warning the crowds to repent now before they have to face God's final judgment. But the word perish actually comes up a whole bunch of times in Luke. And almost always to perish simply means to die. And so I think when Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will all perish, I think he is saying Unless you repent, you'll die like those Galileans. Unless you repent, then you're going to meet a gruesome end like they did. Wow. Talk about awkward, right? 
Like, this almost sounds insensitive, doesn't it? These people have just been butchered by Pilate while they were on the way to make a sacrifice in the temple, and how does Jesus respond? Yeah, unless you repent, you'll perish as well. Now, exactly what is going to happen to them if they don't repent, we're not told, are we? We're going to have to keep reading to find out. But Jesus knows that if these people don't repent, then something horrible will happen to them, just like something horrible happened to those Galileans. And that's why he's prepared to say some awkward things. That's why he's prepared to come across as almost insensitive. That's why he's prepared to say these hard things, because he doesn't want them to perish. And he knows that if they don't repent, there's something awful around the corner, and so he really wants them to get this lesson. Whenever bad things happen, it should always remind you to repent before uh, something bad happens to you as well. That's really exactly the same point that Jesus goes on to make when he deals with the second tragedy. It seems as though a tower in Jerusalem had collapsed, killing a bunch of people. So verse 4. All those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. There's our second tragedy, right? 18 people killed when a, a tower collapsed and fell on them. And Jesus uses this tragedy to make the same point as he did just before. What happened to them was, was awful, yes. But unless you repent, then something awful will happen to you too. Verse 4. Those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. It's really similar to the first tragedy, isn't it? Essentially, Jesus is saying to the crowd, just because there's no tragedy in your life, don't take that as a sign that you've got God's approval and blessing. And just because these other people have experienced tragedy, that doesn't mean they're worse than everyone else. Instead, whenever you see a tragedy, whenever bad things happen, let that be a reminder to you to repent. Now again, this sounds really insensitive. But remember, Jesus is deliberately saying hard things because he doesn't want the people to perish. He knows that if they don't repent, if they don't change their mind about him, if they don't recognise and acknowledge him as the Christ, if they don't trust him, if they don't obey him, if they don't follow him, Jesus says to the crowd, if you don't repent, then something dreadful will happen to you. Something as dreadful as being crushed by a falling tower. Now again, we're still not told what dreadful thing might happen. So again, we're going to have to keep reading to find out. But the big picture, right, is Jesus knows that if they don't repent, then something really awful is just around the corner. He doesn't want them to perish. And so he just keeps on reminding them, whenever you see bad things happen, let that be a reminder to you to repent. Now, in order to illustrate what he's been saying about repentance, Jesus goes on to tell a parable about a fig tree. And helpfully, this parable starts to clarify some of the details for us. So let's have a look. The parable starts out simply enough. A man checks on the fig tree in his vineyard only to find that it continues to bear no fruit. So verse 6. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? 
So for three years, the owner has come to get fruit from the fig tree, and every year it's been the same. There's been no fruit. Now, ordinarily, fig trees bear fruit annually, and after three years, it should certainly be bearing fruit. And so the hope from this particular fig tree, it isn't good. And so the owner decides he wants to cut it down. He decides the vineyard is better off without it because all it's doing is using up the soil. Now, in the Old Testament, the fig tree really was a common image for the nation of Israel. And that's the way we're meant to read this parable. The fig tree in Jesus' story, that's Israel. Now, that's clarifying for us. Because what Jesus is really saying here is that it's the nation of Israel who haven't produced any fruit for quite some time. It's the nation of Israel that needs to repent. If they don't, they're in very real danger of being cut off. They're in very real danger of perishing. Unless Israel repent, they too will all perish. In the parable, though, the gardener asks to give the tree another chance to produce fruit. He wants another year to care for it, to aerate the soil, to fertilise it and to see if it produces fruit. Verse 8. Sir, the gardener replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilise it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. So the fig tree was given another year to produce fruit. But really, by the end of the parable, we're left with the impression that time is short and the chances of this fig tree producing fruit isn't good. The same was really true of the nation of Israel, wasn't it? Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah, God's chosen king, he was with them. If only they would repent now. If only they would change their mind about Jesus. If only they would accept him as their king. If only they would trust him. Well, then they would be fruitful. Then they would have pride of place in God's kingdom. But if they continued to be unfruitful, if they continued to ignore God, if they continued to reject Jesus, if they refused to repent, well, the warning of the parable is that they're in danger of being cut down, which is really the same warning Jesus gave just a few verses earlier. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. And look, Jesus really doesn't want Israel to perish. By the end of this chapter, by the end of Luke 13, he's weeping at the thought of Israel perishing. Jesus really doesn't want them to perish, and that's why he keeps on reminding them, whenever you see bad things happen, that should always remind you to repent before something terrible happens to you. In these few verses, he says some really hard things, things that are awkward, things that almost seem insensitive. He says them because he knows what's at stake. By the end of Luke, in chapter 21, Jesus lays out for his disciples exactly what it will mean for Israel to be cut down. He explains to his disciples what it will mean for Israel to perish. In chapter 21, Jesus says that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. And when that happens, it will be obvious that the desolation of Jerusalem is near. Those will be dreadful days, he says. And there will be great distress on everyone living in Israel. And then the city of Jerusalem, it will be sacked and the people will flee. But before they can escape to safety, they'll be cut down by the sword. They'll be trampled on by their enemies. That's what Jesus says will happen to Israel if they don't repent. 
But perhaps even more terrifying than all of that is that if Israel don't repent, if they don't change their mind about Jesus and acknowledge him as their king, then they'll be cut off from being the people of God. They'll be like the fig tree, cut down and removed from the garden. Unless Israel repent, they will no longer be God's special chosen people because only those who acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, only those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord and King, only those people have any place in the kingdom of God. Now the great tragedy of all this is that exactly what Jesus said in Luke 21, it happened. Jesus warned them to repent. Israel didn't listen and they perished. Within a generation, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was trampled and the people were slaughtered and Israel were rejected as the special people of God. Now, of course, we're not part of the nation of Israel, are we? And so, in a sense, here in Luke 13, Jesus isn't talking directly to us. But, friends, it would be a mistake, a fatal mistake, to simply ignore what Jesus says here. Because you don't have to read too far at all into the New Testament to see that the New Testament writers are urging us to do exactly the same thing. Repent or perish. Perhaps one of the places you can most clearly see the connection between repent and perish is the passage Al read to us earlier. Here it is from 2 Peter 3. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. That is his promise to return in judgment on the day of the Lord. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now it's worth noting that just like in the parable of the fig tree, God is being patient with us. He's being patient with us because he doesn't want us to perish. But the message is clear, isn't it? Repent or perish. Absolutely God is being patient because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He actually wants everyone to come to repentance, but the implication is pretty obvious. If you don't repent, you will perish. Now, what does perish mean here? Well, this time perishing does mean facing God's judgment on the last day. It means facing it unprepared. Because in 2 Peter, Peter has just been speaking for ages about the day of the Lord. The day when Jesus will return to judge the earth. And he said that the day of the Lord, it is coming whether you are ready or not. And it will be an absolutely terrible day. A fearsome day. A day unlike any other. On that day the voice of the Lord will thunder and it will be terrifying. The heavens and the earth will shake. Great mountains will be removed from their foundations and come crashing down. People will look for holes in the ground and caves to hide in. So ferocious will it be. On the day of the Lord, the heavens and the earth will disappear with a roar. The very elements will be destroyed by fire and everything will be laid bare. Everything will be revealed. On the day of the Lord, ungodly people, people who have ignored God, people who have refused to repent, people who have not acknowledged Jesus as their king, On the day of the Lord, 
those people will be held for judgment and they will be destroyed and their destruction will be complete. They'll perish. And it'll be far worse than being slaughtered by a thug like Pilate. It'll be far more tragic than being caught under a collapsing tower. Because, friends, there is nothing, there is nothing worse than facing the wrath of the living God unprepared. And that is exactly what will happen to you if you don't repent. You know, Jesus said some really hard things to the crowd in Luke 13. And he said them because he knew what would happen to them if they didn't repent. And he didn't want them to perish. And I realise that what I'm saying this morning might not be what you want to hear. It might seem like a really unpleasant message. I'm saying hard things. I'm saying awkward things, maybe insensitive things. I know that. But please believe me when I say I'm saying these things because I don't want anyone in this room to perish. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you think Jesus never existed, or if you've just never given him much thought, or if you think it would be a bit inconvenient to have Jesus telling you how to live, or look, hey, if you've been coming along to DPC for ages and you've just never really taken Jesus seriously, if that's you, you need to repent. And you need to do it today. You need to change your mind about who Jesus is, seriously. Because he is the one who made everything. He's the one who made us. Jesus is the one who made you. And that means he's the one who has the right to tell us how to live. Jesus is the one we wrong when we choose to live our own way, when we ignore him. And he's the one who determines that the penalty for our sin is death. But he's also the one who stepped in and died in our place so we could be saved from that punishment. Jesus is the one who was raised back to life. He'll never die again. And now he rules over everyone and everything for all time. And as the king who rules over everything, Jesus commands all people everywhere to repent. He commands all people everywhere to accept him as king and to submit to him as king. And he is coming again on the day of the Lord. And on the day he comes, he will certainly judge the earth. And on that day, whoever has repented, they will have a permanent place in his kingdom. But on that day, whoever has not repented, they will most certainly perish. So friends, are you going to repent? Are you going to change your mind about Jesus? Are you going to live with him as your king? Or are you going to perish? Because make no mistake, unless you repent, you too will perish. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Please, please don't let that be you. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thanks for the, the warning of today's passage. Thanks for the reminder that we need to repent. We need to change our mind about who Jesus is. Thanks that you've given us this warning because you actually love us. You're patient with us. You don't want us to perish. But you actually want us to put our trust in Jesus. You want us to acknowledge him as the king. You want us to live with him as our king and so be saved. 
And so, Father, help us to repent. Help us to think rightly about Jesus. Help us to trust him and honour him. Help us to love him, please. Please forgive our sins and please save us from death and judgment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.